Hello there everyone, this is Dan Figella here with Tech Emergence where we interview entrepreneurs, researchers, investors in the domain of technology and emerging technology. Recently we had on Nick Bostrom, uh, someone who I really enjoyed having a conversation about with regards to the future of technology and the ethical implications, but it's been a bit since we've talked about fiction. And today I'm fortunate to have David Brin on the line with me right now, famed futurist fiction author with a scientific background himself, author of uh, the 1985 Postman, which is very, very well known in the fiction and futurist communities, as well as the more recent 2012 Existence. And David, again, is on the line with us right now. David, how are you, brother? I am fine, and hoping that uh, 2014 merges into a great 2015. Yes, I'm hoping that that, that, uh, that merger goes rather well as well, as we're literally on the cusp at the time of this recording. Um, well, the, the, the interesting thing I pointed out in an article a year ago is that the last three centuries, their great theme began on their 14th or 15th year. And ah. the great, great theme of the previous hundred years began with World War One. So let's hope that we're moving more sort of in an age of Aquarius direction this time. Yes, uh, a little bit more of a peaceful jump off if we cross our fingers for, for the 2014-15 uh, juncture here. Um, anyway, David, I, I wanted to dive into first is a question that I thought would be very pertinent for a fellow like yourself who's been writing for decades and decades in this space, um, you know, I'm a believer that the visions of fiction and, and uh, whether it be in books or in movies, does help shape the direction of research and of where society and entrepreneurs take technology in the first place, that it sort of adds to that vision and, and sort of projects it and moves it forward. However, I'm not well-schooled enough to know all the various examples where that maybe really did happen, where fiction did have a tangible effect on the trajectory of technology. Are there any good examples from the past or about that dynamic in general that you might be able to speak to? Well, uh, if you talk to um, individual engineers and scientists, a great many of them say that they were inspired. Um, even in, in, in areas like uh, politics and economics, where um, people as diverse politically as Newt Gingrich and um, Paul Krugman both say that they were inspired to go into their fields by um, the Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, which I had the honor of writing the, right no the last novel for. Um, but, of course, it's more in the areas of technology that people... Uh, say, you know, Arthur Clarke inspired me to become a f space physicist, yes. or yep. Nancy Kress inspired me to become a biologist. Um, and, and this interplay goes on all the time. Uh, and, I, and I get such fan mail myself. But uh, what's very interesting also is how it's more explicit now. Now, it's not just individuals who are saying this, but in fact, whole groups. Um, the X Prize Foundation, for example, gets a lot of money donated by all sorts of tech companies to its um, X Prize endeavors that are often named for science fictional um, events or places or, or things. Uh, one of the big ones right now is the Tricorder X Prize, where dozens of companies are competing for a multi-million dollar prize to deliver to the medical community a handheld tricorder. Yeah. As in Star Trek, that yeah. would um, be, enable our, our own Dr. McCoy's to just scan people and uh, get um, on-the-spot genetic, uh, biomic, uh, all these information um, streams that would help them to make decisions on the spot. So this inspiration uh, of moving forward, you know, is of course one of the biggest being the cell phone, which interestingly enough, science fiction 
before a certain point in time, even William Gibson and his cyberpunk novels never foresaw the cell phone. Curious. A couple, a couple of people did. Frederick Pohl, uh, in an oddly named uh, novel called The Age of the Pussyfoot, got nailed it utterly back in around 1960. But for the most part, our aim is not to predict. To a large degree, the aim of serious science fiction is to prevent, ah. um, to create the greatest of all science fiction stories, which is the self-preventing prophecy. And the greatest of these, of course, is George Orwell's 1984, Indeed. which so disturbed tens of millions of people that they decided to make strong efforts the rest of their lives to make sure that that situation would never happen. And the difference between a decent person on the left and a decent person on the right is that a decent person on the left fears Big Brother is going to come from, you know, aristocrats, oligarchs, and faceless corporations. A decent person on the right says Big Brother is on his way from snooty academics and government bureaucrats. Yeah. And they seldom stop to realize that both of them have been affected by science fiction to worry about the same basic terrible end. Yeah. They just they just see it rising from a different direction. Curious, yeah, and in Orwell's I'd like to poke that poke and prod that idea a bit more. Obviously Orwell when you said the self preventing fiction, um clearly you know, he was uh, that was a trumpet call, not so much, you know, against the reality of his day, very much not the case, but but against maybe a direction we might go. And I think you would use the term off mic here, you know, where the quicksand is and what we might want to to avoid. Um, why why is it that fiction is better at be, better at poking and prodding what we'd want to avoid, maybe than we'd even want to go towards? You know, I know a lot of people have mentioned the the conundrum that it's really hard to paint the picture of any utopia that anybody would actually want to live in, maybe other than the person who made it up. Um, is that is that the case? Is it just easier to point out the scary, you know, uh, devious, malicious futures to avoid than it is to paint the pictures of the good? Yes, well, um, obviously we are surrounded by dystopias in fiction, um, and I have elsewhere written about how I think it's really been undermining our morale, our ability, left, right, or center, to imagine that we can confidently have this can-do spirit that our parents had when they decided to set off for the moon. Yes. Um, but, uh, mind you, I do make a distinction in this whole dystopia thing. I mean, my novel, The Postman, represented a, a portrayal of a dystopia, and uh, to answer the inevitable question, Kevin Costner captured the heart of my book, which pleased me very much, and it's a beautiful movie, but none of the brains scooped, it up, scooped all those and throw those out. <laughs> but the, the, the point is, though, that there is a major break between two types of futuristic dystopias. One is where the author has a real point to make and says, this is a failure mode. Let's criticize it. Um, and uh, it's not just 1984, it's all the ecological warning um, science fiction tales like Soylent Green, which recruited millions of people into the environmental movement and may save us. Um, or those that helped to prevent World War III, like Dr. Strangelove and On the Beach and Failsafe. Um, these serve a real function, and I honor them. They're self-preventing prophecies. 
But the majority of dystopias, dystopic fiction that we see, especially in Hollywood, uh, these these awful, dreary, simplistic ones about, yeah, I'm the chosen one, and everyone around me is sheep, and uh, they're all trying to make me conform. Um, yeah, well, give me some examples. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, not to throw well, dust on anybody specifically, but I, I'm, I, want, I do want to tie this to uh, something I, I can relate to. Well, well, uh, if people look up my name and the words... Um, Idiot plot. Um, <laughs> okay, they will, quick, they will quickly get to an essay where I describe the reason why so many directors and producers and authors are <laughs> dipping in this well, doing the same darn thing over again, over again. Always a chosen one. Always, you know, um, you meanie society, you're trying to put my star-shaped uh, peg into a square hole. Um, and, and it really harkens to basic human adolescence and fears. But above all, it's laziness. Because mm. your, job, your job as a director or an author is to put your heroes in pulse-pounding jeopardy. It's the jeopardy that keeps it tense and entertaining. And the easiest way to do this is to assume that society is crap. And to assume that none of your neighbors surrounding your character will ever lift a finger to help. And so this helps engender this confidence-destroying notion that all our institutions, they don't just merit criticism, which of course they do, Edward Snowden and all of that. Well, for sure. But they, aren't, they don't, don't just merit corrective criticism, but that they are inherently and will always be crap. And mm -hmm. that our neighbors inherently and always will be useless sheep. And that is destructive. Yes, okay. The, the, uh, the other thing you said was, you know, um, are there utopias out there? Well, the utopias also have to, um, have to develop tension. They have to have, I mean, two utopias that I can think of. One is very silly, and that's Bill and Ted. Uh, the other is very seriously took on the question of what if we're better, if our, <laughs> if our grandchildren are better than us, and they still have problems. What might those problems be? And that was very mature science fiction, real meaty science fiction. And you know exactly what, what universe I'm talking about. Uh, there's only one that's ever been done, and that's called Star Trek. Um, and it's the only one that had the courage to say, what if our neighbors aren't all idiots, and what if our institutions aren't all evil? Even so, there'd be adventure. Even so, there'd be mistakes. Yep. Even so, there'd institutions worth criticizing so and I, I i i'm certainly going to be googling the idiot plot thing and i think again you know to some degree the as you had said the the laziness and whatnot maybe to some degree the the ticket sales and that the the sort of adolescent you know kind of don't we all aren't, aren't we all sort of plot along folks who really wish we were heroes um, and, and doesn't that sort of resonate in some some portion of us? But at the same time, I, I, I too can see that, you know, you had mentioned the, the confidence that our parents had to use, to use your terms there, that we could go to the moon, that that was viable, that we could marshal our resources together to, to further uh, have, have a sense of where we are in this universe and what we can do with it and where we might take ourselves and that that was a, a positive and sort of um, enlivening vision and, and that now for the most part, 
it's like, oh man, not Skynet. You know, I, I can't, I can't say how many times Skynet gets thrown out there. Anytime I even talk about the term like artificial intelligence, and it's not by malicious people by any means, but I think it is an aggregate haze of sort of what fiction in the future is. And it sounds to me as though for you, you know, we we could be working away on that and sort of being responsible about how we're influencing the world society and our future trajectory if we just thought through. You know, what are the questions people really should be considering? What are What is the kind of confidence that we should be able to hold as a society and have together if we're going to build a better future? Yeah, well, I have nothing against Skynet. Um, I think there are some real dangers involving artificial intelligence. Oh, yeah, I'm with you there, I too. Mind, I don't mind movies that explore the yin and the yangs of this, and actually there have been a couple lately. I thought Transcendence was a little disappointing, but it still raised important issues. I thought, I thought it did as well. I thought Lucy was deeply underrated by the public and the, and the critics. Um, the, the, the notion that we should have fiction that explores how this could go wrong or how that could go wrong. Personally, I'm afraid of Skynet coming not from the military, but from high-frequency stock trading programs um, from Goldman Sachs. More money is being spent by those Wall Street banks on artificial intelligence than the top 10 universities combined. And it's all being done in secret with programs that are designed to be predatory. So there are certainly good reasons for lots oh, of... Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, no, and of I, course. And I, I'm all in favor of, of, of warnings. But uh, I think it's also important that every now and then we take note of the fact that it wasn't just the moon that we went to in the 60s. We took on some of the biggest problems that human beings have ever taken on. And one was, you know, the, the, the racism, sexism, the incredible waste of human talent that most civilizations engaged in because of class structure and, and sexism and racism. And this was a far more difficult thing to take on than going to the moon. And we have not finished this task. Nope. The left will never let us forget that there's, there's still stuff to be done in these areas. But the fact of the matter is that a pat on the back along the way, while we're flagellating ourselves on the back for how we haven't gone far enough, a pat on the back for how far we've come is well called for. Because we're a different people than we were then. Literally. We, we, we are very different. And... Um, the, the one thing about racism and sexism is it's not gone, but nowadays you have to pretend you're not, and that's real progress. Yeah, that's a, 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 a great way of putting it, but I think, I think it actually, in addition to the pretending thing, which is just sort of the acceptable social boundaries, I think we actually, on the aggregate, have moved further you know, away from that. And I think that maybe some folks were optimistic about some technological developments, but that there, there, there might be core cultural strifes and core cultural conflicts uh, that, that wouldn't be resolved even when technology was. But I think you're right. I mean, we, we've proved a, a solid amount of progress in that domain as well. And like yourself, I mean, I, I certainly don't scoff at Skynet, and I think artificial intelligence is, is more than you know, it, it more than warrants some, some serious forethought, as do any emerging technologies. Um, but, but as you had mentioned before, not just a, this will be bad forever, all this will do is kill us, isn't that just the worst kind of mentality, whether it be from the layperson, the scientist, etc. I think that if, if that's, like you said, if, if we can explore the quicksand, great, and we should, as much as we can, so long as it doesn't completely demoralize us, but at the same time, we should be open to, as you had mentioned, 
noticing progress and maybe mapping out what, what progress might be, too. Any other decent examples for you, David, before I ask my what's probably going to be my last question here, um, about um, fiction that has explored maybe what the good might be in addition to what the bad might be? In other words, what to move towards, not just what to move away from? Well, I think, you know, the fact that we, so many of our, our uh, fictions today have very strong female characters, I think has had a huge effect upon uh, upon us. I think we're starting to, um, a fair number of people are starting to read uh, the, the statistics conveyed by Steven Pinker, P-I-N-K-E-R, yep. his um, latest book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, yep. which shows statistically that the last five decades have been a relentless improvement in uh, redu reducing poverty and per capita violence around the world. And so why does it seem as if poverty and, and violence are getting worse? Well, it seems that way because we're getting better connected and we can see the portions that remain and worry about them. So the, the important thing, in my opinion, is morale. Can we believe that we're part of a civilization that has accomplished a lot and therefore can take on the remaining challenges like climate change and and um, and limiting uh, limiting all the terrible weapons out there, and we'll only have the confidence to, to believe we can do that if we believe in it. Uh, it, it, and and that's partly a role for fiction. Look, in in, in existence, I make a distinction between um, those who believe we should charge ahead into the future embrace the technologies, learn, find the mistakes as quickly as possible. So stick those sticks, science fictional sticks, in the, in the path that we're charging into the future so we can find the punchy stakes and the quicksand and the landmines. And, and those who are taking up more and more a, a new religion of renunciation, that's, that's, we've got to pull back. We've got to um, uh, nostalgically pull up wisdom of ancient times, the yep. wisdom of older days. And whereas you see most of this going on on an American right wing that is really turning its back on science, there is a far left, there is a portion of the left that's doing this also. So it's, it's not a matter so much of left and right, although it's stronger on one side than the other. It's a matter of resisting nostalgic romanticism, yeah. which is a huge temptation and is foisted on us by an awful lot of science fiction and fantasy. And, and I think, well, it's, it seems as though there's always been that, you know, I mean, didn't, didn't, uh, you know, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure Aurelius hearkened to the, to the, you know, the times of his forefathers and Emerson just the same. Um, but, but at the same time, as you had mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm of the general belief that the future is going to happen. You know, Bostrom talks about the fact that we can't put technologies back in the box. And I think the same might be able to be said of cultural changes and that the wave is going to go down and, and you know, to, to quote Diamandis, where you were talking about the X Prize, um, you know, potentially making it is sort of the way to shape it. And as you had said, making it eagerly while sticking the stakes where we need to and, and moving where we need to as well. Um, but but knowing that it's coming and being kind of eager to to make that charge in an, in a um, 
you know, a cautious but still optimistic and, you know, full of the kind of morale that you had spoken to. I'm very much uh, likened to that. Um, well, we, we, have to, we have to restore our ability to negotiate with each other. And unfortunately, America is rife with uh, very simplistic dogmatisms. Um, this silly, I referred to it already, this silly lobotomizing metaphor of a left-right political axis. No, I, I don't like it at all. I don't like it, it one bit. It's, we should abandon it because it's French. <laughs> and we should abandon all French things. No, but yes. uh, <laughs> but no, no. I'm I'm with you. I mean, I I I I think that I don't know. I've never been I've never been one to to marshal too much, you know, or to. It, it's just another stigma. It's like black and white. Oh well, he's one of those right wing. You know what I mean? It, it's another umbrella term that's limiting in thought. Just because I realize we're we're close on time here, David. I really did want to ask this one last question of you, and I'll keep this to our final question. Um, is for you, you know, uh, the the collaboration of science, whether that be in research or in business, and fiction. Um, you know, there are some, you know, I was, I was looking up uh, Wendell Wallach, who was a previous guest, had pointed me in the direction of some work at ASU with, with Neil Stevenson, and, and uh, they're, they're getting some masterminds together with, with folks in quote-unquote hard science and, and folks in fiction and sort of brainstorming a little bit about the future. Where, where do you see that maybe being done well, and where do you maybe think there would be more room for that in order to create what a good future might be? Well, I just think that, you know, uh, we, we, we need to find ways of telling myths that have some effect on our ability to have confidence in, our, in, in, in what was the greatest experiment the world has ever seen. I wrote a post-apocalyptic dystopia, but the fundamental mythos of the postman was that, you know, here's feudalism rising up to seize us yet again. 6,000 years of feudalism, and the great experiment appears to be over. But this one fellow going from village to village, spreading a mythology, a lie, in order to get fed, his mythology grabs a hold of the people, village after village, and they make it come true. And they decide that there is a sacred word that they had almost forgotten that he had reminded them of, and that is that they were citizens of something. And, and it's the people who make the miracle happen, not the... Uh, yes, there is a hero in the book, uh, there, 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 and, uh, but it is the people who wind up being the hero. And um, if a little bit of more of that, the authors would realize, and the directors would realize, that that's actually a rebel meme that it would actually make them seem different. It would make them stand out from the market. There's a reason why The Postman was a bestseller. But you have to grab them by the scruff of the neck and say, look at the things you are repeating over and over and over again. Look, the Spider-Man movies uh, are, aren't, great, aren't great art. They mm -hmm. aren't great cinema. But there is one thing that they do in every single Spider-Man movie that, um, uh, that I really like. And that is, in every Spider-Man movie, he spends 95% of the movie saving New Yorkers. But there's always a scene in which New Yorkers save Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, it brings tears to my eyes, because you never see it. And if I can say this to all my authors, uh, all the authors and directors and storytellers out there... This is how you can bring tears to people's eyes 
and do something different rather than just copying the same damn cliches that are undermining our morale. And I, and I think part of it, David, and you'd be able to speak to this as well, is, is most likely, you know, most fiction authors, the average guy behind a, a laptop these days, probably isn't seeing his writing of fiction as marshalling the human psyche towards a grander future, pointing out where the landmines are, pointing out what the better directions are. They probably don't see that as their moral role, and maybe some of them don't want that imposed on them. Do you think that more more writers seeing that as part of their contributive, legitimately contributive effort, not just as entertainers, but as molders of the future, that that, that vision, that role clicking in their mind would help with this? Well, I think in some cases it would. Uh, I think a lot of people do care about being members of a civilization. I think a lot of people, you know, if they read my idiot plot, some people have written to me saying, I read your this, this essay and I realized that, you know, I'm always showing every institution as, as useless and evil and all neighbors as being useless and sheep. And I, but the main thing is that Authors, even if they don't give a darn about the message that they're telling, they're going to want to avoid a cliché once it's been pointed out to them. Got it. And the cliché of the chosen one, the cliché of, oh, you are all so mean to me trying to make me a conformist, uh, but when I, when I um, hit, hit my teenage years and find my real powers and my real friends, you're all going to be sorry. Yeah. You know, the Harry Potter Ender's Game thing. When, when people realize how much of a cliché these patterns are, then some authors are going to want to break from them just to break from them, just to stand out. And maybe that'll be fruitful for the future as well. Well, it's worked for me. Yeah, indeed. Well, yeah, it's, it's tough to deny that. And I, I'm very much a, a believer that I, I think if, if as fiction writers, if as entrepreneurs, if as researchers we do at least on some level, maybe it's not our dominating thought day in and day out, but understand that on the aggregate we can be and are, whether we want to be or not, influencers of the world's to be. In general, hopefully together we'll make a better one. And that's one of the reasons I appreciate your work in fiction in general. David, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here on the interview on Tech Emergence. If people want to learn more about you or maybe dig into some of your works, where should they go online to find you? Well, I, I have a site, davidbrin.com, that's filled with stuff, um, more, you know, free stories, um, essays. Uh, I've, I've, I've been on the whole Mr. Transparency thing about the, about the Internet uh, age, so I have a nonfiction book called The Transparent Society uh, as well. But uh, in any event, uh, davidbrin.com, I have a blog, uh, Doesn't Everybody?, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, in any event, uh, good luck to you all. And, uh, you know, the, the kinds of people who crunch tech, they're the people who make the world. I hope so, my good man. Thanks again, David. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, then be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. 
Um, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious f- uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Uh, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week.